Hi, and welcome to the Rethinking Trauma and Transition podcast, where we are challenging the stigma surrounding trauma and the concept of healing through the conversations we're having. We want you to be empowered in the experiences you're facing and the challenges, and hopefully by providing some knowledge and a different way of talking and language in terms of the descriptions and how we, we speak about that, then that helps you towards your transformative journey to a more fulfilling life. So what are we talking about today, Rich? We are, Ali, talking about resiliency and what that means. Give me a definition of resiliency, Rich. I'm not going to give you definition per se. I think we'll look at it this way. It could, or it could be described as successfully adopting to difficult, challenging difficult or life-challenging events or experiences. So there's a bit, I was looking at some of the social media posts recently about resiliency and there was a bit of a debate because I think sometimes people talk about resiliency in terms of, it sounds almost as if in order for you to to be resilient or to, or to have high levels of resiliency, it's kind of almost like a just get on and do it type attitude. Yes, that's possibly is where people are ending up being burnt out because they're taking on, they think they have to take on this burden or um, this extra work, whatever it is, and they haven't set themselves their own personal boundaries, which we've talked about quite past, quite a lot in the past few episodes. Because I don't know about you, but for me, it's more about a, a constant learning journey where we learn about ourselves and we yeah. don't necessarily come out the other side unscathed but we come out stronger from the lessons we've learned definitely and that's what it's about it's being able to successfully adapt to whatever difficult or life challenging events that we're experiencing coming across because if we're doing the same kind of thinking throughout there's no adaption there's no change is there it's just carrying on the same old way that we always have done and that's people then end up becoming potentially becoming depressed anxious isolated because they have no other means of coping or dealing with these situations i like the the, the way you're using one specific word in that there's rich and that's adaptation mm. i think that's really important especially when when i when i pick up on what you're saying about it's not about doing the same old same old yeah it's not the strongest of the species that survives. It's the most adaptable, isn't it? Very much. Yeah. And there's that element of learning that the adaptation is a vital part of because that's almost a demonstration of the learning then. Mm. Yeah. As we say in the military, and I'm sure this comes across a whole sector of workforces, is improvise, adapt, and overcome. If something's not working find a way to improvise a new tool or new method of doing something and adapt that tool or way of doing it and overcome that obstacle, that objective into, I was going to say victory. Yeah, I suppose that could be a good word to use. Success. Success, yeah. If we break that down to the improvise, adapt and overcome, because there's an, an element essence there there's almost like three stages in terms of that resiliency journey then isn't there so let's see if we can expand that improvise section first off in terms of that first step we look at that as 
modeling someone's successful behaviors that you've not utilized yourself. Uh, there's a very good friend of mine who does lots of survival training and been having various chats with him about what he carries around in his little old um, metal tin, you know, the old metal tobacco tins. Mm-hmm. He carries quite a lot in them. And as he was saying is you want to use, utilize as much space in that tin as possible. So you'd melt the candle down so it'd have corners, so the corners would fit nicely into that tin. They, you'd have, so obviously you have things like fishing line, hooks, fire lighters, fire lighting stuff, and a whole host of other things as well in there. And it would be looking at all these items and going, oh, where can I utilise the fishing line in somewhere else? No, we say, for example, going out when he's gone out on his exercises, when he's gone out to do some, some survival stuff, there's some line in there, he may have had a big old cut on his arm. They could use that fishing line then to stitch himself up. Not the best stuff to use, obviously, but you know, <laughs> it's things like that to improvise, not utilize necessarily um, what something is designed for to be used as. So, if I think about that in the business context, that sounds a lot like transferable skills and transferable <laughs> learning. Yeah. Now, if I look at things like learning methodology, lean methodology, there's always that review and implement phase where you're kind of looking at the things that have gone right, the things that have gone wrong, you're looking to replicate the right, the successes as as much as you can. And you're looking to learn from the things that could have gone better and going, well, actually, what would we do differently knowing what we know now about that experience? And I'm wondering in terms of that resiliency, because we've talked a lot about patterns and about breaking patterns, Mm -hmm. but there's also an element of transferability of patterns. And sometimes I think we underestimate exactly how much we have in our tobacco tin that we maybe only use in one setting or have done up till now, but we could use in a new way, in a different way now with a little bit of thought because that's a bit like breaking conversational patterns that always end up the wrong way. Yeah, or it could be about a skill set or something that has worked really well in a different setting that we could adapt and apply in this setting to get us a better outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we or people tend to have those thought patterns of I blame X, Y, and Z for my situation, and when they're talking to someone, it's always about them not. It's always about them being stuck in that moment of time, potentially. Always repeating those patterns, always repeating the same phrases, the same words. And it's looking at interrupting those patterns, interrupting those words that, or that, physical, that physiology in some way to change that pattern so that person then can adapt into a newer, better, more positive situation. It strikes me that also a part of resiliency then in terms of breaking those patterns and the adaptation, there's an element where we have to be prepared to step out of our comfort zone to feel a bit uncomfortable and that maybe those emotions that sometimes we deem as negative and to be avoided, like things like anxiety, etc., 
there's almost an element where that's part and parcel of that journey because that's a demonstration of the stepping out of the prescribed pattern but it's just managing those levels so that it doesn't put us in a place of high risk. Yeah. So if we're looking at improvisation and adaptability and that transference of learning and skill, that stepping out of our comfort zone, there's an element in there as well, which is about, and again, that's linked to the comfort zone piece, mm -hmm. which is about acknowledging our own capacity to have new experiences because this might not necessarily be an experience or a learning that we have come across before but we actually have the capacity to research to ask to tap into other people who may have that yeah well that's all that's about old dogs learning new tricks isn't it and doing different things when you don't think you're capable so that could be going to the gym, learning new hobby, new sport, new social network, something like that. So research that says how to be or gain more resiliency from people or from yourself really is five principles. And they are gratitude, compassion, acceptance, meaning and forgiveness. Can you break those down a wee bit more detail for me, Rick? Yeah. So gratitude is being grateful for the little things we've got. You know, we could be having a meal, we could be having a home, friendship. Then we've got compassion to ourselves and others because we all make mistakes. All, all our friends, all our family make mistakes as well, even though they may be not seen by yourself as well-intentioned, they possibly quite well would be from their point of view. So if we look at those first two, because... The gratitude one also strikes me as almost like touching base because when we are out of our comfort zone, when we are in a in a in an anxious state, sometimes we actually forget what the foundations under our feet look like. Yeah. And that gratitude piece sounds almost like it's a, a check-in to remind us exactly what those foundations look like. Yeah. That's not letting our thoughts run away. Is about finding our centre, as you say, being grounded again. When I think about the, what you've said about the compassion piece, when I reflect on that, it sounds an awful lot like an awareness that we might not necessarily be in that situation on our own. Potentially, yeah. And it's also, I'm wondering if that's also about situational awareness in a way as well where we're not only paying attention to ourselves, but also experiencing and maybe taking time to have a consideration for the experience from the perspective of other people as well. Yeah. As I said, we all make mistakes and we need to... The other, another one would be acceptance of those mistakes, acceptance of ours and other people's failings. So most of us are pretty much our own worst critics, we're really hard on ourselves and being more gentle with ourselves and other people as best we can. I think that's really powerful because, as you see, sometimes those inner critics, those voices we carry, we, we are quick to place blame. And often that blame is on ourselves when we're coming from a place of low self-esteem, low self-worth or low self-value. When we're coming from a place of insecurity, then 
And again, I think that comes back to that desire to keep ourselves safe. If we are out of our comfort zone, then the urge is to get back into our comfort zone as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. And that can translate sometimes to that self-blame because it's it's the urge to back away and back away swiftly. Yeah. Whereas forgiveness of both ourselves and our own capacity to not have to be perfect all of the time, but also to allow other people not to have to be perfect all the time too, is really powerful. Yeah. And you've also, the other three are acceptance, which we've kind of covered, meaning, and you've covered a little bit of that, is forgiveness as well, Ali. So it helps to find some kind of positive meaning in that trial and tribulation we've been through and how it's had that positive effect on yourself, even though you may not see it at that time or understand what that positive effect is, it's going to make that person, potentially that person, hopefully a whole lot better in some, some regards. What we're not seeing is being grateful for, for the negative experiences. What mm. we're recognising is that we have the capacity to find value in different ways, isn't it? Yeah. That sometimes that value is not maybe necessarily immediately visible to us. No. But at some point we can repurpose that experience or part of that experience, we can repurpose the growth from that experience mm -hmm. to our benefit. We might not always repurpose the experience, but we repurpose the growth from it. Yeah. So there's a few key factors that contribute to personal resilience, resiliency even, and they are the way someone views and engages with the world, the availability and quality of social resources and specific coping strategies. So if we've always got a pessimistic view of the world and how the world is, then the world is always going to be a miserable place to live in and, and go around in. As a few people have said, heaven and hell, that's all in the mind and how we perceive the world to be. I suppose that comes back also to like my, my definition of luck as well, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. That that luck is a is an experience that is a is attributed after the event. Mm -hmm. And our interpretation of the event determines whether we consider it lucky or not, which means that depending when we attribute or review it might change our view of whether an event is lucky or not. Yeah. We might immediately think that was unlucky. And then six months, a year down the line, go, actually, no, that was very lucky. Yes. When, as we mentioned before, everything really pretty much is neutral. Yeah. And it's only how we react to it in that moment of time and later mm -hmm. yeah that attributes the sense of good bad and different luck unluck yeah yeah the availability availability even and quality of social resources so that's all about the support system that you have in place and your own personal network how well you get on with other people and I would guess you might even include that into the area that you live in. So if it's not a very well-resourced or poor quality area, you may not have those resources to be able to dig yourself out and get yourself out of that situation. Do you think there's another layer in there as well? Because sometimes we can be physically and geographically isolated. Yeah. But I'm just conscious that, and it comes back to that matchy-matchy machine that is our brains. When we are feeling 
alone, ironically, our brain will seek to match our behaviours to that emotion. And that's when we're more likely to self-isolate. Because we create congruence in the moment between our reality and our thinking. The matchy-matchy kicks in and goes, job well done, guys. Look, hey, we've, we've got a perfect match here. That social context, that sense of community, that strikes me that, that that's encouraging in terms of the building of resilience to reach out and look beyond your immediate circles and that actually connection is what helps with that too. Yeah, yeah. Well, it would also be if somebody's living in a rundown area, they're most likely going to have a harder time than somebody who lives in a more affluent area of dealing and coping with things because there's generally less resources allocated to that. And getting out of that locale is going to be generally tends to be harder. I'm contemplating that because I think sometimes I agree, but I also want to add another caveat. Yeah. Because sometimes we can be isolated by the public persona of our own success. Yeah. And that's where there's an element which is about the worth of your connections and the value of your connections. Oh, absolutely. And the nature of the relationships that you build. Yes. How much you share of yourself and invest in that relationship. So is that, are you building relationships that are all very much based on material surface and fitting in? Or are you actually building relationships that that are based on who you actually truly are, that Mm. have shared values, shared beliefs, shared thinking? Yeah. And then the final one of these key factors is specific coping strategies. So they could be everything from things like learning breathing techniques to meditations to learning how or going away on courses that whatever it means to improve yourself in some way. So does that mean then that it's encouraging us to tackle that from from a physiological standpoint, from how we manage those negative emotions and negative feelings in the moment? Mm. So it's we... an internal state, isn't it? Yeah. So what sort of things can can help with that? So we've mentioned it before, and there'd be loads of YouTube videos and all that, is box breathing. So it could be four or five breaths in, and then hold for four or five breaths, out for four or five breaths, and hold for four or five breaths, and repeat that until four, half a dozen goes, until you feel better. So that's like a breath count of four in the intake, and the hold, yeah. and the outtake. Yeah, you that do... literally falls the box shape. Square, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. There's another one where you go, say, four breaths in, hold for four, then double length of breath out as well. You could do if you're going to work. You might even you can even and you walk in. There's also walking meditations, and you could ask yourself questions such as, "Who am I? Who do I want to be?" and that kind of thing. So meditation doesn't necessarily have to be sat in a chair or sat on the ground in the lotus position going on. Meditation takes a whole host of different ways and methods for various people. It's interesting you say that because I had very much that conversation just recently with somebody about the fact that, and I don't know, maybe it was yourself, Rich, about they were struggling to meditate and they'd been advised to try and meditate for 60 minutes a day. And I said, well, that's... That's a lot if you've never done meditation before. That's 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 like trying to go from 
from couch to London Marathon in one fell swoop. And what struck me is, is, as you say, is that actually meditation can be much more personal and experienced mm -hmm. because what you're aiming to do in that moment is in a way is quieten your thoughts, slow them down a bit. Because we're never going to stop our thinking. Our yeah. thinking is going to happen whether we're engaging with it or not. But we can get to a point where we're not as involved in it and not as actively chasing each of those thought patterns. And as you say, that can be through a range of activities. And is that meditation isn't just about what we traditionally perceive almost as the practice, but it can be as simple as, I've heard people say, for instance, that baking is their meditation mm -hmm. because the action of the of of the the practice routines is something they're very familiar with, and in doing so, it allows everything else to quieten down. So there's that element of the physical activity in a familiar pattern that allows the stillness of the thinking. Yeah, yeah. For some, that may be walking. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe running. Yeah do some form of exercise what you enjoy doing it for others it may be pulling weeds in the garden it will be just be careful of putting the weeds of somebody in somebody's mind they might be weeds to you there could be somebody's sunflower well that's a that's that's about weeds being plants just in their own place isn't it yeah and i suppose that pulls us back to that adaptability and the transference of skills in a way nice link because that's about not underestimating the knowledge we already have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we'll come on to something else in a minute regarding all that sort of stuff, which comes under what they call seven C's okay. or the American Pediatrics. And I was going to go on, according to resiliency theory, other factors that help build resiliency include social support, which we've already kind of covered. And you touched on self-esteem a little bit. And people who have higher self-esteem tend to be more resilient. Again, we've touched on coping skills and how we communicate with people as well is highly important. And the better we can communicate our um, feelings, our sense of maybe frustrations, that sounds a lot like boundaries and boundary yeah. setting and, yeah. and maintaining our boundaries in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And letting people know, as you say, what is acceptable, what isn't acceptable, what's going on internally with that with yourself, those kind of things. Having those hard conversations at times. Well, um, that strikes me that that sometimes in conversations, what we're not good at doing is having a conversation about this is impacting me in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is where I'm at at this point with this. What we're very good at sometimes is the stone throwing, the you can't do this, you can't do that conversations. Yes, very much so. Rather than the more honest conversation, which sometimes feels the harder one, which is about this is what I'm feeling right now. Yeah. Yet the second one that this is what I'm feeling right now is the one that somebody can't really argue with you about because you're expressing your feelings. Mm -hmm. You're not attributing ownership or responsibility. You're just saying this is my experience in this moment. That's right, yeah. Is blame-free. And judgment-free as well. 
Yeah, it is judgment free. There is no judgment either on self or other. In yeah. that, there's no blame on self or other. It is just a very factual. This is my experience in this moment. Yeah. And as a result, you're much more likely to get a a different response that doesn't res re result in the blame game that sometimes degenerates situations to a point of of no resolution. Well, it'd be as we mentioned before, it'd be going over those same old patterns, having those same old conversations with that same family member, for argument's sake. And then, as you said, poking fingers at people and chest poking and going, you did that to me and I did that to you and all that sort of malarkey. Yeah. And sometimes that's also about saying what you need in that moment to help mm. alleviate those those emotions and those feelings yeah and again that's not about blame or responsibility that can sometimes be about actually i need some thinking space or i'm just struggling really hard with that i need some support in this moment and this is what the support would look and feel like for me that's right and sometimes that's also about i just need a good vent to get it off my off my chest and, and get that out there because Quite often we get into the habit, especially if we're working with people or we're with people that we are very close to and attached to, we get into fix mode. Yeah. When in actual fact, what that person needs from us in that moment is the space to express what they're experiencing and the trust that, that in the expression, that's part of them figuring it out for themselves. Exactly. Well, we've all got an idea of who those people are that are nearest to us. So we've got that mold in breaking, stepping out of that mold is quite a hard thing for these for people to accept and deal with because they don't like it well they don't like it they're not used to it it's difficult it's new territory mm, it is yeah i remember one of probably one of the best line managers i ever had and they were amazing in terms of what i learned working with them but what was absolutely superb was they gave me the freedom to not always be perfectly comfortable with everything, but also the trust to know that I was I was more than capable of, of acknowledging when I needed their support and help. And right. they would literally, if I was have if I was ex expressing an issue, they would literally say to me, "What do you need from me right now? Do you need me to intervene in your behalf, or are you okay and you just need to to work through it with me?" And that was incredibly liberating, incredibly freeing because it took a whole host of pressure off that conversation that just didn't need to be there mm. but it also gave a lot of freedom in expressing what i was experiencing what my concerns were and it, it opened up my thinking and my problem solving in that moment yeah and the final one of these factors then is emotional regulation so again if we're not considering who we are and how we are and we're always running up in the red zone our blood pressure's up, we're going to be thinking straight, we're not going to be able to have those conversations, we're not going to be able to communicate well. And those coping skills have gone completely out the window and possibly losing all that social support around us, which is very important as well. So that sounds a lot like it's, um, and again, I'm, I'm referencing some of the things we've talked about before, is almost being aware of the bridge out signs before it gets to the critical point, before you're in the red zone, giving ourselves the capacity to be more responsive earlier to those. Yes. 
and again, as you said, noticing those signs of when we are becoming distressed and finding those people, that social support who we can turn to, to give us that assistance that we do require. Because in the extreme, that sounds almost like a, like a blowout or burnout situation that can be not pausing until the point where the pressure cooker has well and truly imploded. Yeah. Thinking about that, that knowing where your red zone is sounds to me like that's a really powerful thing to acknowledge because it strikes me that in amongst all of that, again, are our values, our beliefs and our boundaries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How much attention we're paying to all of those in terms of encroachments or challenges to those. Yeah. So we'll go on to the seven C's if you want to, Ali. Go for it. So this is from the American um, Academy of Pediatrics. And they say these seven C's are competence, confidence, connection, character, contribution, coping, and control. So we've already covered a few of these. And so they say competence is the ability to know how to handle situations effectively, to build confidence, competence, sorry. Individuals develop a set of skills that help them trust their judgments and make responsible choices. So that's about acknowledging that we're constantly learning then really, isn't it? Yeah. And it comes back to that capacity to give ourselves the grace period to do so. Yes. And yes. to not always have to be perfect. Yeah. And as well is, I'm sure that you've done this, you start reading about a subject and you go, oh my God, how much do I not know about all this? All the time, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Wow, I feel like, so start reading new subjects on whatever it is, you go, Christ, alive, I'm back in primary school. <laughs> yeah. School, whatever it is, and go, you're talking to someone who's been doing in their field for a long time, go, I'm an absolute idiot compared to, not an idiot, but, yeah, it's a long old journey to get to a reasonable level where you may feel confident within yourself and there's always the um, imposter syndrome when you do get to a competent level because it's all that, oh, what's our scale again? Dunning-Kruger effect, isn't it? Mm. Can I add another C into the mix? Yeah. And I'm going to add a C that's the counterbalance sometimes to that, that's the the enabler for it it certainly was for me and that's curiosity because i always i for a long while struggled with the uh, with the capacity to be able to say that i actually didn't have the answer i didn't know or to i found it really difficult when i didn't have a clue about something mm -hmm. it felt like it was a a judgment on me that i was lacking and what tipped the scales for me was opening the door in my curiosity. Because when I'm really curious, there is no space left for me to feel as though I'm not smart enough, I'm not intelligent enough, because my curiosity fills all of that space. Mm. And that enables the questions. Now, sometimes it can be a bit much. I do appreciate that because, you know, and I've got to rein the questions back in and slow them down because I'm going full hog down that rabbit hole. But it means that I ask questions a lot more than I ever did before. Yeah. And it means that when I'm curious, there's no space for me to feel as though I'm not smart enough, I'm not intelligent enough, because I'm just curious. Yeah. Yes, I'm curious where it will take you in your wonderings and musings and things. <laughs> the next one is 
confidence. So Dr. Ginsburg says that true self-confidence is rooted in competence. And individuals gain confidence by demonstrating competence in real life situations. I want to kind of add a, a kind of angle to that again. Yeah. And again, it comes down to that curiosity piece. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering sometimes whether or not we get caught up too much. And I'd be really interested in your viewpoint on this, Rich, on whether the number of times I hear people say, I'm just not confident. I don't have any confidence. And it sounds like this is something tangible that you have to have a defined amount of. And my question really is, is that even valid in terms of a tangible thing? Or is that that curiosity again, and that freedom to express our curiosity, at which point the confidence becomes a null point? Yeah. And it's also confidence in what precisely? And if you are confident in a particular area and it may be something considered quite simple like tying up your shoes turning up your shoelaces could you carry that confidence from there across into another realm well that's a really interesting debate because what we're talking about there is is competence isn't it it is and Which... it's almost like implying that if we're competent then we're also confident yeah. and that comes back to my question is confidence actually a real thing yeah so as I'll, I'll read out the first sentence again then. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ginsburg says that true self-confidence is rooted in competence. So when we are confident, competent in doing whatever task that is, then we become more self-confident. We have less of those imposter syndrome thoughts and doubts about ourselves because we know we get better at doing whatever that skill set is. I'm contemplating the, that, the, the imposter syndrome because as we're having the conversation, and don't get me wrong, I have that sometimes too. You know, I don't know anybody that doesn't from time to time. Some of us more than others, but you know, uh-huh. Especially when I'm stepping out of my comfort zone. Yeah. And I'm doing something that I don't have yet, that unconscious competence, that that embedding of my learning where I'm still having to actively work through things actively recall because it's not quite at my fingertips yet I've still got to process and work it out in a much more conscious way and as I'm kind of having that inner debate with myself here as I'm having the debate with you comes back to what is confidence it's seen it's sound it's starting to feel more and more like that confidence is is almost like a an umbrella banner or title mm -hmm. for everything that sits underneath which is the curiosity the the competence you know the other c's which actually are component parts of what other people perceive as confidence yeah in actual fact is multifaceted well go on about um imposter syndrome so there's one chap i was working with and he works with large multinational and he was saying to me how he was always worried and he's had all these concerns about him being in that position. And my answer was to him, if they didn't think you're good enough, why, why did they put you in that place in the first place? They would have got somebody who is competent in, to do that job, to do that task and to do it well, is others can see inside you what you can't see in yourself. I would wholeheartedly agree with that, yeah. And I think times there is nothing more soul-destroying than being bored. 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 Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's my Scottish accent kicking in there, isn't it? Because when we're bored, 
we're less likely to be engaged. We are, yeah. We're less likely to be creative. We're less likely to be imaginative. And as a result, we're probably less adaptable. Mm -hmm. If we are unconsciously competent in absolutely everything and there is no challenge in something, then there's a risk of boredom. Yeah. So you know, coined the phrase bored out and burnt out. So you got mm -hmm. burnout and then you got bored out, which is the opposite end, but very similar to being burnt out. Well, I look at recent conversations and burnout and I would I would again I agree wholeheartedly because I think that is a very there's almost like a an engagement type of burnout where you just aren't getting the stimulation you need you aren't mm. getting the challenge you need where as a result you feel undervalued you feel underappreciated you feel unseen yes but that can then lead on to things like self-esteem as well and how you perceive yourself in that work situation or that family setting whatever it is very much yeah so then as we already talked about is connection and that's close ties to family friends community provides a sense of security and belonging and that comes back to that urge to withdraw yeah to pull the drawbridge up and fortify the the ramparts well should be doing the opposite not necessarily letting the whole barriers flood in or anything like that but being more engaged definitely yeah. We never know the strength of our support network until we tap into it. Mm -hmm. And in terms of that adaptability piece, that improvisation, if we pull up the drawbridge, if we man the ramparts, then we are unable to engage in the conversations that might give us the solutions or the way forward, or at least clear some of the path for us that yeah. might be within our network. Yeah. And then we're looking at character as well. So individuals need, individual need a fundamental sense of right and wrong to make responsible choices, uh, create and contribute to society and, ex and experience self-worth. Expand on that one for me. So if we don't have the boundaries and we're going out doing um, what might be considered criminal acts or going against some of other people's morals and values, then people can or some people get thrown out of the family. Again, they would have thrown out of family, nowhere to go. They're not making good choices. You know, somebody say an alcoholic, and they've made all these bad choices about drinking all the time and spending money on drink or whatever else. Neglecting the family. They're not make, be making uh, reasonable choices. They've been self-centered. And then the only thing they're contributing to society really is helping the taxpayer, isn't it? And, and get thrown out, being drinking heavily and all that sort of stuff, get thrown out of the house, leave it home on the streets, the self-worth may, may go down. They're not contributing, not being seen as a valued member of society. Is that really what, what that sounds like? Is almost pay attention to the spread and the lay of your table of values. Mm. And what's actually important within those and actually where the weighting is of each of those because we can very easily get caught up in thinking our value lies in how much we earn how senior the job is how important the job title yeah we all have not so much these days but we all have that same six foot hole in the ground don't we exactly yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. nobody gets out of this place alive well hard but true uh-huh and when it comes down to it 
the things that we are more likely to be remembered for are not how much we earned or how senior a position we had, but the impact on the people around about us and the connections that we had. And if we don't pay attention to those, then the world can become a very barren place because Mm -hmm. the true richness of life sits in the relationships. Yeah. As I say, no man's an island. Very true. So then... The next one is contribution. Again, Dr. Ginsburg says that having a sense of purpose is a powerful motivator. Contributing to one's community reinforces positive reciprocal relationships. So purpose. Yeah. Going out there, get involved with the community, get involved in little projects. So I'm going to add another piece to that purpose and participation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I don't think you can have one without the other. So that would be, if I translate that in a slightly different way, that's about what are we choosing to participate in and what's the purpose of that participation? Yeah. Is it a positive contribution or is it a destructive one or a negative one? Is it aligned to our values? Is it enriching and nourishing those? Yeah. Or is it putting those in conflict? Is it nourishing and respecting our boundaries? Or is it encroaching on those? So that sounds like it's almost a a health check in terms of invest wisely of your time and efforts. Mm -hmm. And And, who with as well. Yeah. But the participation is aligned to your own internal scale in terms Mm -hmm. of value and worth and beliefs. Yeah. The next one is coping. When people learn how to cope with stress effectively, they remember there's two kinds of stress. So you've got eustress, which is considered positive ones. That could be doing some exercise, thus going out of your comfort zone, that kind of thing. Then there's distress, which is, can I afford to pay the bills this month? Stuck in traffic at work, getting on to work again could be late, that kind of thing. So... When people learn to cope with stress effectively, they are better prepared to handle adversity and setbacks. That sounds a little bit like it's related to that circle of influence and circle of concern. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a circle of influence, which is the with the things that are within our scope to alter, amend or change or address. And then there's the circle of concern where things that may cause us May well, impact we, on our on us, but there's not it's not within our immediate scope to do anything about. Yeah, I was going to say that's something that is totally beyond what some people get all upset and bothered bothered about is um, things that, as you say, things beyond their absolute control. Things that they have, they can do a little bit to do whatever to help, but in the grand scheme of things, it ain't going to change much. Well, I suppose a classic example of that is road rage, isn't it? Mm. Because road rage is almost like the the physical manifestation of us engaging with something that actually is not within our scope to influence. Other people's driving might concern us, but actually it's, that's up to them to sort. Yeah. But we end up experiencing road rage and, and wanting to influence that, when in actual fact, that negative expression, that negative experience of the moment, isn't something that we can actually alter or amend. Well, again, that's going back to our own emotional regulation, isn't it? Yeah. So that sounds like the emotional regulation 
also has a has a key part in terms of us recognizing what the scope of our influence actually is. Yeah. And what we can do something about and what we can't, which mm-hmm. also strikes me as a bit like that that anxiety timeline we talk about, where you know, I think I'd mentioned it before, where anxiety is very future focused, where we when we're spending too much time time jumping to the that point too far ahead, we we end up managing multiple contingencies that might never happen. We're yeah. making shit up. And the final one of these seven C's is control. So develop an understanding of internal control helps individuals act as problem solvers instead of victims of circumstance. When individuals learn that they can control the outcome of their decisions, they they are more likely to view themselves as capable and confident. So it's about that internal loci, isn't it? Of um, I'm going to stay present as best I can. I'm not going to give my power away to that idiot driver over there. I'm not going to give my power away to maybe my partner who's upset me as I've come straight through the door from work and they've there jumped all over me and start screaming and shouting about this gone wrong, that's gone wrong. It's about staying as present as potentially can or looking at grander scheme of things is there's a war or conflict going off somewhere else and really concerned about that. Well, the grand scheme of things is not much able to do about that, is there? I'm going to hone in on the my partner has upset me comment mm-hmm. because that's a very personalised experience in the moment. Yeah. And the reason I'm honing in on it is because I create my emotional landscape. Exactly. It's a reaction to. Yes. Yeah. It's the reaction that I choose to have to the experiences I'm experiencing I'm having in the moment. That means that I create those emotions. Mm-hmm. They are responsive. And though they are responding to my thinking round about that, to the messaging that I am creating in myself in that moment. Yeah. And as we've always mentioned beforehand, it's about boundaries. You know, you'd ask your partner to say, give yourself 10 minutes to come into the house, sort your stuff out. Then they can have a chat and discussion about And it's all about communication as well, setting boundaries as to what's acceptable and not getting jumped on as soon as you come through that door kind of thing. Well, it's also sometimes, again, about that curiosity and not engaging the same pattern. Because there's nothing so powerful as responding in an unexpected way to get a different response. Oh, yeah. And that pushes, it basically rips up the script. And one of the most powerful phrases that you can use in situations like that is, is a very simple one, which is tell me more, not tell me less. Yeah. Because you immediately push the person into a point of reflection where they then have to gather more information. And as a result, you're more likely to, one, get information that's more useful because you're pushing them to a different point and therefore more than likely you're breaking that emotional state and you're enabling space for the creation of a different one. You're also information gathering and you're no longer in conflict. Mm -hmm. There's also another useful phrase is, that's right. (laughs) So that's an acknowledgement of someone's upset. So it could be, that's right, you're angry now. 
mm-hmm. that's right, you're upset now, or just simply that's right. What I would suggest is, if that's with your partner, you probably need to follow that up with it. I can see that. Tell me more. Yes. Otherwise, otherwise, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. So there's that acknowledgement, and then the follow up with the um, fact finding, or but... yeah, get curious. Yeah. Give them space to explore mm. that, not shut them down. Yeah. Because sometimes the most hurtful thing we can do to others is put them in a situation where they don't feel heard. And the most powerful thing we can do is hear them. And avoid the judgment as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So today, Ali, we've been talking about resiliency and really? ways and means of becoming more resilient. Well, I think that it's also, we've really gone through almost the Resiliency isn't something simple. It's made up of so many different elements and aspects. And it's not about repeating patterns. It's about opening ourselves up to exploration and learning. It's about recognising that not all of our experiences in life are going to be pleasurable or, or, or things that we would want to repeat, but also giving us ourselves the space to learn from that, not necessarily celebrate the experience, but recognise that actually we are changed at the end of it. And I think recognising that we that it does change us is really powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've got the five principles of gratitude, compassion, acceptance, meaning and forgiveness, as well as the social, social support, self-esteem, coping skills, communication skills and emotional regulation. And we also cover off the seven C's as well. I think resiliency, the more we adopt the capacity to give ourselves the space to apply these, the better we get at it. Building resiliency, because I would suggest that it's not necessarily like a defined amount that we should have. It's an ongoing process. Yeah. And the more we do it, the more we acknowledge the growth of that and adaptability of our ha- that we have, because I think that's probably, for me, the key word in all of that is adaptability. Mm-hmm. And we need to improvise as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the better we get at becoming more resilient, because it's a lifelong thing. Yes. And we also covered off the seven C's and what they are, because there is also cross-reference between both what we had said before and what we covered off there as well. And we'd like to say thank you to our listeners in... Canada, Holland, Denmark, the United States, Australia, and Germany, and all across the UK as well. Yeah, we're kind of getting a bit of a bit of a global stretch here we now, are. aren't we? We are. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you for listening, and um, we'll see you next time. We shall indeed. Yes. Take care.